Section 14 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Section 14. Workers in Art. Part 1. If what shone afar so grand, turn to nothing in thy hand, on again, the virtue lies in struggle, not the prize. R. M. Milnes. Et chale et tu vivras. Joubert. Excellence in art, as in everything else, can only be achieved by dint of painstaking labor. There is nothing less accidental than the painting of a fine picture or the chiseling of a noble statue. Every skilled touch of the artist's brush or chisel, though guided by genius, is the product of unremitting study. Sir Joshua Reynolds was such a believer in the force of industry that he held that artistic excellence, however expressed by genius, taste, or the gift of heaven, may be acquired. Writing to Barry, he said, whoever is resolved to excel in painting, or indeed any other art, must bring all his mind to bear upon that one object from the moment that he rises till he goes to bed. And on another occasion, he said, those who are resolved to excel must go to their work willing or unwilling morning noon and night they will find it no play but very hard labor but although diligent application is no doubt absolutely necessary for the achievement of the highest distinction in art it is equally true that without the inborn genius no amount of mere industry however well applied will make an artist the gift comes by nature but is perfected by self-culture which is of more avail than all the imparted education of the schools some of the greatest artists have had to force their way upward in the face of poverty and manifold obstructions illustrious instances will at once flash upon the reader's mind claude lorraine the pastry-cook tintoretto the dyer the two caravaggios the one a color-grinder the other a mortar-carrier at the vatican salvatore rosa the associate of bandits giotto the peasant-boy zingaro the gypsy cavadone turned out of doors to beg by his father canova the stone-cutter these and many other well-known artists succeeded in achieving distinction by severe study and labor under circumstances the most adverse nor have the most distinguished artists of our own country been born in a position of life more than ordinarily favorable to the culture of artistic genius gainsborough and bacon were the sons of cloth-workers barry was an irish sailor-boy and maclise a banker's apprentice at cork opie and romney like inigo jones were carpenters west was the son of a small quaker farmer in pennsylvania northcote was a watchmaker jackson a tailor manetti a printer reynolds wilson and wilkie were the sons of clergymen lawrence was the son of a publican and turner of a barber several of our painters it is true originally had some connection with art though in a very humble way such as flaxman whose father sold plaster casts bird who ornamented tea-trays martin who was a coach-painter wright and gilpin who were ship-painters chantry who was a carver and gilder and david cox stanfield and roberts who were scene-painters it was not by luck or accident that these men achieved distinction but by sheer industry and hard work though some achieved wealth yet this was rarely if ever the ruling motive indeed no mere love of money could sustain the efforts of the artist in his early career of self-denial and application the pleasure of the pursuit has always been its best reward the wealth which followed but an accident 
Many noble-minded artists have preferred following the bent of their genius to chaffering with the public for terms. Spanoletto verified in his life the beautiful fiction of Xenophon, and after he had acquired the means of luxury, preferred withdrawing himself from their influence, and voluntarily returned to poverty and labor. When Michelangelo was asked his opinion respecting a work which a painter had taken great pains to exhibit for profit, he said, I think that he will be a poor fellow, so long as he shows such an extreme eagerness to become rich. Like Sir Joshua Reynolds, Michelangelo was a great believer in the force of labor, and he held that there was nothing which the imagination conceived that could not be embodied in marble, if the hand were made vigorously to obey the mind. He was himself one of the most indefatigable of workers, and he attributed his power of studying for a greater number of hours than most of his contemporaries to his spare habits of living. A little bread and wine was all he required for the chief part of the day when employed at his work, and very frequently he rose in the middle of the night to resume his labors. On these occasions it was his practice to fix the candle, by light of which he chiseled, on the summit of a pasteboard cap which he wore. Sometimes he was too wearied to undress, and he slept in his clothes, ready to spring to work so soon as refreshed by sleep. He had a favorite device of an old man in a go-cart, with an hour-glass upon it, bearing the inscription, Ancora Emparo, still I am learning. Titian also was an indefatigable worker. His celebrated Pietro Martyr was eight years in hand, and his last supper seven. In his letter to Charles V, he said, I send your majesty the last supper, after working at it almost daily for seven years. Dopo sette anni, lavorandovi quasi continuamente. Few think of the patient labor and long training involved in the greatest works of the artist. They seem easily and quickly accomplished. Yet with how great difficulty has this ease been acquired? You charge me fifty sequins, said the Venetian nobleman to the sculptor, for a bust that cost you only ten days' labor. You forget, said the artist, that I have been thirty years learning to make that bust in ten days. Once, when Domicino was blamed for his slowness in finishing a picture which was bespoken, he made answer, I am continually painting it within myself. It was eminently characteristic of the industry of the late Sir Augustus Calcott that he made not fewer than forty separate sketches in the composition of his famous picture of Rochester. This constant repetition is one of the main conditions of success in art, as in life itself. No matter how generous nature has been in bestowing the gift of genius, the pursuit of art is nevertheless a long and continuous labor. Many artists have been precocious, but without diligence their precocity would have come to nothing. The anecdote related of West is well known. When only seven years old, struck with the beauty of the sleeping infant of his eldest sister, while watching by its cradle, he ran to seek some paper, and forthwith drew its portrait in red and black ink. The little incident revealed the artist in him, and it was found impossible to draw him from his bent. West might have been a great painter, had he not been injured by too early success. His fame, though great, was not purchased by study, trials, and difficulties, and it has not been enduring. Richard Wilson, when a mere child, indulged himself with tracing figures of men and animals on the walls of his father's house with a burnt stick. He first directed his attention to portrait painting, but when in Italy, calling one day at the house of Zuccarelli, and growing weary with waiting, he began painting the scene on which his friend's chamber window looked. When Zuccarelli arrived, he was so charmed with the picture that he asked if Wilson had not studied landscape, to which he replied that he had not. Then I advise you, said the other, to try, for you are sure of great success. Wilson adopted the advice, studied and worked hard, and became our first great English landscape painter. 
Sir Joshua Reynolds, when a boy, forgot his lessons and took pleasure only in drawing, for which his father was accustomed to rebuke him. The boy was destined for the profession of physic, but his strong instinct for art could not be repressed, and he became a painter. Gainsborough went sketching when a schoolboy in the woods of Sudbury, and at twelve he was a confirmed artist. He was a keen observer and a hard worker, no picturesque feature of any scene he had once looked upon escaping his diligent pencil. William Blake, a hosier's son, employed himself in drawing designs on the backs of his father's shop bills and making sketches on the counter. Edward Bird, when a child only three or four years old, would mount a chair and draw figures on the walls, which he called French and English soldiers. A box of colors was purchased for him, and his father, desirous of turning his love of art to account, put him apprentice to a maker of tea-trays. Out of this trade he gradually raised himself, by study and labor, to the rank of a royal academician. Hogarth, though a very dull boy at his lessons, took pleasure in making drawings of the letters of the alphabet, and his school exercises were more remarkable for the ornaments with which he embellished them than for the matter of the exercises themselves. In the latter respect he was beaten by all the blockheads of the school, but in his adornments he stood alone. His father put him apprentice to a silversmith, where he learnt to draw, and also to engrave spoons and forks, with crests and ciphers. From silver-chasing he went on to teach himself engraving on copper, principally griffins and monsters of heraldry, in the course of which practice he became ambitious to delineate the varieties of human character. The singular excellence which he reached in this art was mainly the result of careful observation and study. He had the gift, which he sedulously cultivated, of committing to memory the precise features of any remarkable face, and afterwards reproducing them on paper but if any singularly fantastic form or outre face came in his way, he would make a sketch of it on the spot, upon his thumbnail, and carry it home to expand at his leisure. Everything fantastical and original had a powerful attraction for him, and he wandered into many out-of-the-way places for the purpose of meeting with character. By this careful storing of his mind, he was afterwards enabled to crowd an immense amount of thought and treasured observation into his works." hence it is that hogarth's pictures are so truthful a memorial of the character the manners and even the very thoughts of the times in which he lived true painting he himself observed can only be learnt in one school and that is kept by nature but he was not a highly cultivated man except in his own walk his school education had been of the slenderest kind scarcely even perfecting him in the art of spelling his self-culture did the rest for a long time he was in very straitened circumstances but nevertheless worked on with a cheerful heart poor though he was he contrived to live within his small means and he boasted with becoming pride that he was a punctual paymaster when he had conquered all his difficulties and become a famous and thriving man he loved to dwell upon his early labours and privations and to fight over again the battle which ended so honourably to him as a man and so gloriously as an artist i remember the time said he on one occasion when i have gone moping into the city with scarce a shilling but as soon as i have received ten guineas there for a plate i have returned home put on my sword and sallied out with all the confidence of a man who has thousands in his pockets industry and perseverance was the motto of the sculptor banks which he acted on himself and strongly recommended to others his well-known kindness induced many aspiring youths to call upon him and ask for his advice and assistance and it is related that one day a boy called at his door to see him with this object but the servant angry at the loud knock he had given scolded him and was about to send him away when banks overhearing her himself went out the little boy stood at the door with some drawings in his hand what do you want with me asked the sculptor i want sir if you please to be admitted to draw at the academy 
banks explained that he himself could not procure his admission but he asked to look at the boy's drawings examining them he said time enough for the academy my little man go home mind your schooling try to make a better drawing of the apollo and in a month come again and let me see it the boy went home sketched and worked with redoubled diligence and at the end of the month called again on the sculptor the drawing was better but again banks sent him back with good advice to work and study in a week the boy was again at his door his drawing much improved and banks bid him be of good cheer for if spared he would distinguish himself the boy was mulready and the sculptor's augury was amply fulfilled the fame of claude lorraine is partly explained by his indefatigable industry born at champagne in lorraine of poor parents he was first apprenticed to a pastry cook his brother who was a wood-carver afterwards took him into his shop to learn that trade having there shown indications of artistic skill a travelling dealer persuaded the brother to allow claude to accompany him to italy he assented and the young man reached rome where he was shortly after engaged by agostino tassi the landscape painter as his house-servant in that capacity claude first learned landscape painting and in the course of time he began to produce pictures we next find him making the tour of italy france and germany occasionally resting by the way to paint landscapes and thereby replenish his purse on returning to rome he found an increasing demand for his works and his reputation at length became european he was unwearied in the study of nature in her various aspects it was his practice to spend the great part of his time in closely copying buildings bits of ground trees leaves and such like which he finished in detail keeping the drawings by him in store for the purpose of introducing them in his studied landscapes he also gave close attention to the sky watching it for whole days from morning till night and noting the various changes occasioned by the passing clouds and the increasing and waning light by this constant practice he acquired though it is said very slowly such a mastery of hand and eye as eventually secured for him the first rank among landscape painters turner who has been styled the english claude pursued a career of like laborious industry he was destined by his father for his own trade of a barber which he carried on in london until one day the sketch which the boy had made of a coat of arms on a silver salver having attracted the notice of a customer whom his father was shaving the latter was urged to allow his son to follow his bias and he was eventually permitted to follow art as a profession like all young artists turner had many difficulties to encounter but they were all the greater that his circumstances were so straitened but he was always willing to work and to take pains with his work no matter how humble it might be he was glad to hire himself out at half a crown a night to wash in skies of india ink upon other people's drawings getting his supper into the bargain thus he earned money and acquired expertness then he took to illustrating guide-books almanacs and any sort of books that wanted cheap frontispieces what could i have done better he said afterwards it was first-rate practice he did everything carefully and conscientiously never slurring over his work because he was ill remunerated for it he aimed at learning as well as living always doing his best and never leaving a drawing without having made a step in advance upon his previous work a man who thus labored was sure to do much and his growth in power and grasp of thought was to use ruskin's words as steady as the increasing light of sunrise but turner's genius needs no panegyric his best monument is the noble gallery of pictures bequeathed by him to the nation which will ever be the most lasting memorial of his fame to reach rome the capital of the fine arts is usually the highest ambition of the art student but the journey to rome is costly and the student is often poor with a will resolute to overcome difficulties rome may however at last be reached 
thus francois perrier an early french painter in his eager desire to visit the eternal city consented to act as a guide to a blind vagrant after long wanderings he reached the vatican studied and became famous not less enthusiasm was displayed by jacques callot in his determination to visit rome though opposed by his father in his wish to be an artist the boy would not be balked but fled from home to make his way to italy having set out without means he was soon reduced to great straits but falling in with a band of gypsies he joined their company and wandered about with them from one fair to another sharing in their numerous adventures during this remarkable journey callot picked up much of that extraordinary knowledge of figure feature and character which he afterwards reproduced sometimes in such exaggerated forms in his wonderful engravings when callot at length reached florence a gentleman pleased with his ingenious ardour placed him with an artist to study but he was not satisfied to stop short of rome and we find him shortly on his way thither at rome he made the acquaintance of porigi and thomason who on seeing his crayon sketches predicted for him a brilliant career as an artist but a friend of callot's family having accidentally encountered him took steps to compel the fugitive to return home by this time he had acquired such a love of wandering that he could not rest so he ran away a second time and a second time he was brought back by his elder brother who caught him at turin at last the father seeing resistance was in vain gave his reluctant consent to callot's persecuting his studies at rome thither he went accordingly and this time he remained diligently studying design and engraving for several years under competent masters on his way back to france he was encouraged by cosmo the second to remain at florence where he studied and worked for several years more on the death of his patron he returned to his family at nancy where by the use of his burin and needle he shortly acquired both wealth and fame when nancy was taken by siege during the civil wars callot was requested by richelieu to make a design and engraving of the event but the artist would not commemorate the disaster which had befallen his native place and he refused point blank richelieu could not shake his resolution and threw him into prison there callot met with some of his old friends the gypsies who had relieved his wants on his first journey to rome when louis the thirteenth heard of his imprisonment he not only released him but offered to grant him any favour he might ask callot immediately requested that his old companions the gypsies might be set free and permitted to beg in paris without molestation this odd request was granted on condition that callot should engrave their portraits and hence his curious book of engravings entitled the beggars louis is said to have offered callot a pension of three thousand livres provided he would not leave paris but the artist was now too much of a bohemian and prized his liberty too highly to permit him to accept it and he returned to nancy where he worked until his death his industry may be inferred from the number of his engravings and etchings of which he left not fewer than sixteen hundred he was especially fond of grotesque subjects which he treated with great skill his free etchings touched with the graver being executed with special delicacy and wonderful minuteness still more romantic and adventurous was the career of benvenuto cellini the marvellous gold-worker painter sculptor engraver engineer and author his life as told by himself is one of the most extraordinary autobiographies ever written giovanni cellini his father was one of the court musicians to lorenzo de medici at florence and his highest ambition concerning his son benvenuto was that he should become an expert player on the flute but giovanni having lost his appointment found it necessary to send his son to learn some trade and he was apprenticed to a goldsmith the boy had already displayed a love of drawing and of art 
and applying himself to his business he soon became a dexterous workman having got mixed up in a quarrel with some of the townspeople he was banished for six months during which period he worked with a goldsmith at siena gaining further experience in jewellery and gold-working his father still insisting on his becoming a flute-player benvenuto continued to practise on the instrument though he detested it his chief pleasure was in art which he pursued with enthusiasm returning to florence he carefully studied the designs of leonardo da vinci and michelangelo and still further to improve himself in gold-working he went on foot to rome where he met with a variety of adventures he returned to florence with the reputation of being a most expert worker in the precious metals and his skill was soon in great request but being of an irascible temper he was constantly getting into scrapes and was frequently under the necessity of flying for his life thus he fled from florence in the disguise of a friar again taking refuge in siena and afterwards at rome during his second residence in rome cellini met with extensive patronage and he was taken into the pope's service in the double capacity of goldsmith and musician he was constantly studying and improving himself by acquaintance with the works of the best masters he mounted jewels finished enamels engraved seals and designed and executed works in gold silver and bronze with such a style as to excel all other artists whenever he heard of a goldsmith who was famous in any particular branch he immediately determined to surpass him thus it was that he rivalled the metals of one the enamels of another and the jewellery of a third in fact there was not a branch of his business that he did not feel impelled to excel in working in this spirit it is not so wonderful that cellini should have been able to accomplish so much he was a man of indefatigable activity and was constantly on the move at one time we find him at florence at another at rome then he is at mantua at rome at naples and back to florence again then at venice and in paris making all his long journeys on horseback he could not carry much baggage with him so wherever he went he usually began by making his own tools he not only designed his works but executed them himself hammered and carved and cast and shaped them with his own hands indeed his works have the impress of genius so clearly stamped upon them that they could never have been designed by one person and executed by another the humblest article a buckle for a lady's girdle a seal a locket a brooch a ring or a button became in his hands a beautiful work of art End of section fourteen. Chapter 6, Part 1. Recording by Olivia.